This is episode 412 of the 200 Churches Podcast. The challenge when you go a traditional planning structure and you say, okay, we're going to plan to do this and we're going to, we're going to reach elementary kids' age. And we're going to do this and that. It didn't work out. We can't stop. We are terrible in the church of stopping something. And part of the reason we're terrible is we prayed when we did it. We thought God was directing. We prayed over it. We said, God called us to this. We are going to go do this because God's called to this. And now three years into it, it doesn't work. Well, did we miss God's call? Are we not spiritual enough? Whatever it might be. All that stuff goes on. And so instead of stopping, we create something new on top of it. And when we create something new on top of it, we just make the problem even, even worse. Thank you for joining us on the 200 Churches Podcast. For more than 10 years, we've been providing ministry encouragement to pastors of small churches. Allow me to introduce one of those pastors, Jeff Cady, one of the co-founders of 200 Churches and the lead pastor of Community Heights Church in Newton, Iowa. Take it away, Jeff. This is the 200 Churches podcast. My name is Jeff Cady in the opulent and so luxurious 200 Churches podcast sound studio today on the podcast. I have a guest unlike almost any other guest I've ever had. It's a university president. And for the conversation, he was wearing cufflinks, cufflinks on the cuffs of his broadcloth dress shirt. Now, you know, we live in a pretty casual society, and it's been a while since I've seen cufflinks. But Roger Parrott is really one of America's most experienced university presidents. He leads Belhaven University in Jackson, Mississippi. It's a doctoral level institution. It is highly regarded as one of only like 36 schools in the world working at the highest level of collegiate arts programs. Belhaven University, it was named in 2021 to the best university to work for by the Chronicle of Higher Education. And Roger, Dr. Parrott, he was recognized as one of the 10 most visionary education leaders of 2021 by Education Magazine. He has served in board leadership for years in roles with different Christian organizations, and he's the author of The Long View, Lasting Strategies for Rising Leaders. Now, all of that is wonderful, and Roger's a great guy, and his cufflinks were phenomenal. But for none of those reasons did I want to talk to Roger. Rather, His most recent book, published by Moody, is called Opportunity Leadership. Stop planning and start getting results. That book, it kind of stopped me in my tracks when I saw the title. And I thought, I have got to talk to this guy. Stop planning? Now he's talking my language. And if Johnny were here, yeah, he's talking Johnny's language too. Because... Planning sometimes, and I've always thought this, is highly overrated. Now, as soon as I say that, people think about all the benefits and all the uh, blessings and profit of planning, and, and all that is true. But I think sometimes planning in and of itself is so revered as uh, the way to succeed and the way to have success, I just, I just don't believe it, and I, I really never have. I like to plan, but I don't plan that often. I just, I'm just not wired that way. And I always felt bad about it. And then I saw this book, 
Stop planning and start getting results. So I got a hold of uh, Roger Parrott, and he was so kind and so gracious from his truly, now truly, no joke, opulent and luxurious university president office in Jackson, Mississippi. We talked for an hour, and this is the conversation. Pastor, I know you're going to hear some great leadership lessons in this episode, and I'm so glad that I can share it with you. So here is my conversation with Dr. Roger Parrott. Roger Parrott, hey, it's so good to have you on the 200 Churches podcast. All the way, is it Birmingham, Alabama? Jackson, Mississippi. We're the real south. This is... This is the buckle of the Bible Belt, so um, uh, we are right in the center of it, which makes it an interesting place to be where the culture is Christian, but we need stronger churches. So, <laughs> Okay, well, where did I come up with Birmingham? I have a friend in Birmingham, and that must have stuck in my mind, but I actually looked up. You're less than 12 hours from me, a straight drive to Jackson, Mississippi. Mississippi is one of those strange states I have never been in. Oh, One you of the few. Come. it's fabulous. You know, the thing about Mississippi is, uh, you know, the stereotypes of Mississippi and people misunderstand a lot of Mississippi. And in fact, we have a kind of publicity campaign that makes fun of it, says we can't write. We can't read, but we sure can write because all great authors came out of Mississippi. And and uh, <laughs> we don't wear shoes, but we wear cleats because a lot of great football players came out of Mississippi. Okay. It, there's just wonderful people, just absolutely kind and and generous. And I was working yesterday with a consultant who was here at the university trying to help us on marketing and some messaging. And he said, he's from New York, and he said, I've never been on a campus where people are so nice. Everybody was just so nice. And I said, well, I hope that's us, but that's also Mississippi. They're really nice at the grocery store too. So Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Well, you wrote this book called Opportunity Leadership. Is there a byline to it? What's the subtitle? The opportunity leadership, stop planning and start getting results. And that's where the punch comes in is this whole idea is. of giving up long range planning. And instead, let's get some results that God has for us. So interesting. I am uh, on the DISC uh, assessment. I am a high S and <laughs> just a little bit lower I. I have no D. I have no C. So I am very much attracted to your book and to its title and subtitle, and we'll want to talk about that. But but tell tell our listeners, you've not been on the podcast before. We are this month 10 years old now, providing right. ministry encouragement to pastors of small churches. So introduce yourself. Tell us uh, where you are, what you do, and maybe a little bit about your family. Yeah. Well, I'm president of Bellhaven University in Jackson, Mississippi, school of about uh, 4,000 students, about a little over 1,000 of those are traditional students. We're especially distinctive in the arts. We're the only Christian college in the world working at the highest levels of the arts. We're nationally accredited in all four of the major arts, music, theater, visual art, and dance, which really makes us unique and stand out. And students come from all over for that. We're really strong in STEM, other kinds of programs, teach from a Christian worldview in everything that we do. But we're we're kind and gentle, and we are as committed to grace as we are to truth. So that's Bellhaven. It's a wonderful thing. But uh, I'm glad what you're doing for churches because that's my history and background too. I pastored for 
seven years, long time ago in, in inner city Detroit. Know what that means to be a small church pastor where it's all you, except for what my wife could do with me. And then was uh, uh, in Washington, D.C. in a suburb there, pastoring while I went to graduate school. And also in college, I started, I'd go, um, I was asked to go fill in at Woonsocket, Rhode Island. I was in Boston. My wife and I drive down there every Sunday to preach. I didn't know what I was doing. Absolutely had no idea. Young student. And every Sunday we'd come home and say, we're going to quit this week. And we did that for nearly two years. So it was a great experience. And I'm always thankful because I hope and pray that 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 pastor's heart that God gave me early on is how I lead this institution. And, And I preach in chapel every week with our students. And so I still get the opportunity to to share. Cool. And your family. Tell us about your family. Yeah. My wife teaches English here at Bellhaven, specialties Shakespeare and ancient Greek literature and uh, American lit. And my kids, um, uh, Grady's 30, works in the library, graduated from Bellhaven, did a master's in library science at the University of Alabama. My daughter did two degrees of Bellhaven musical theater, then a master's in leadership. And uh, But she was one of the earliest people in the country to get COVID and she's had COVID long hmm. for three years and is, oh, I'm sorry. Is, is in bed in bed for three years because of it. We work with the top COVID doctors in the, in the country uh, at Mayo Clinic to help her. And we're seeing, starting to see some improvement, but uh, it's been, it's been pretty rough. She got it in China when she was there with me in November, just before COVID hit in the U S and uh, okay. never been able to shake it. So this is your daughter. Yeah, she's twenty eight years old now. So, been a oh bit man, weird. it's been a been a journey. But God's good, and a lot of people praying for, her, thousands of people praying for. Her, so, wow. we are grateful. What, what's her name? Madison. Madison. Yeah, I suppose you have a much different perspective over the last three years than what really many of us. Yeah, do. it's it's been an interesting and wild time. Um, you know, and for the university, of course, to, to go off and go compo- to- totally online and then deal with the pandemic and testing everybody and yeah. uh, and all that kind of thing and all the issues that go around that. But, you know, I, I worry for pastors on that, too, because pastors have had to hit the front line of that and a lot of division sometimes within churches about how to approach it and and what it means spiritually or not. You know, I really applaud the work pastors have done to try to uh, to minister to their people, especially when there's disagreements over COVID and other kinds of things like that. It's tough. I'm curious, um, as you've kind of developed some perspectives on all of this, have you spoken to pastors and have you, over the last year or two, developed any kind of wisdom or advice that you give to them? In handling well, some of this stuff, yeah, what have you I, I I have spoken to pastors, and I and I think here's the takeaway to me from the period of COVID, and it really dovetails with the message of my of my book, which which is not a new model of leadership. I'm not promoting a new model of leadership. It's really a biblical model of leadership that comes back to a complete and total trust in God, and instead of our whiteboards and our planning systems. What COVID, if you take all the bad stuff away, and there's horrible bad stuff, and I've had to live it, but you take all the bad stuff away, there's a lot of good stuff that came out of COVID. And first of all, we we determined we could have ministry and church uh, significance without meeting on Sunday morning. 
we mm-hmm. determined that we could uh, interact with people in different ways, like you and I are right now, uh, over technology that we couldn't before, and that can be a meaningful place to connect. We, we found that, that people were much more transparent about their needs and about their emotions and, and where God fits in their life. And I think pastors have risen to that occasion to, to try to make ministry more personal rather than all corporate. So I, I think a lot of good things came out of COVID. But, you know, the, the, the really interesting thing was anybody who had a long range plan four years ago didn't have one. Because nobody had COVID in their plan. This is this nobody, yeah. not one person, maybe somebody in the government someplace deep down had a, had a plan, but nobody else had a plan. So how did we do when we didn't have a plan? And pastors adjusted very quickly. They made decisions much more rapidly and in, in streamlined ways. They, instead of working with structure, they brought together people who needed to be part of a decision. They made it and they went. They took more leadership responsibility rather than depending on on a process or tradition or some of the structures that hold us back. And all those are good things. And so my kind of my call to pastors now is let's not let go of that stuff. That was good stuff. And let's just not go back to where it was Let's figure out how we really can not have this this structure of planning driving everything that we do and in the process miss the opportunities that God has for us. And I think that's what's happened. Uh, it's not that uh, it's not that in planning we don't do good things. No, we do do good things. We just don't reach far enough to what God really could do. And I think that uh, it really puts us under pressure than to try to create a plan to make us look like somebody else rather than what God's called us to. Hmm. And every, especially every small church in the country has a unique mission, a unique constituency they serve, often the outgrowth of of, uh, a handful or more of extended families and their friends and those connections. And, and, there's too often, I think, pressure because of how planning works to try to create us into something we are not. And in doing that, we miss the ministry that's right there at our feet. So that's kind of my encouragement is let's let go of this, des- what I call destination planning, long range planning, and let's really be open to God's opportunities as they come and capture those moments. And and I think, especially for a pastor, that's often more personal, one-on-one or or small, than it is structural. And and that's where the most significant ministry happens. But that's where Jesus's most significant ministry happened. Yeah, he you know he, yeah. he gave us the Sermon on the Mount, but most of it wasn't that. Most of it was talking to this person or that person. And how many times do we read that Jesus was headed one place and somebody called him someplace else and he went? And I think our planning structure, especially within a church, as we're trying to emulate a bigger church or a bigger organization and trying to do that, it gets us so focused on that when people do call us away for the things that are really urgent and immediate and where we can have an impact. We're so focused on that plan, we're missing it. We don't hear oh, it. Oh, because we have our boundaries. Right. Exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So th- this is really interesting to me. I don't I don't remember ever seeing a book that approached planning like this, but 
as soon as I saw your your title and read a little bit about your book, I said, this is kind of what I've felt. And I always just assumed it was my personality. It was the way I was wired and that other people are wired differently. And so I'm curious, how many books have you written and, and how long have you been thinking about actually taking these ideas and this philosophy and putting it down on paper and actually yeah. putting yeah. this book together? How long was that book in the making in your mind? Well, it, first of all, it's encouraging that that your response was that because that's what I'm hearing from lots of people. Mm-hmm. I, I had one college president call me about a month after the book came out. He said, I, I stayed up all night reading your book and finally <laughs> I don't feel guilty. This is yeah. what I do, but I always felt guilty. I needed to do it a different way. Yeah, and, I can see and that. And the book's kind of radical. I mean, you know, if somebody gets it and reads it, it it's kind of radical. And, and you don't have to jump off the cliff and do the whole thing. You can do pieces of it. But the book for me really came, it's, it's almost been 25 years probably in the making, because you're right, nobody else has written on this. And nobody else has really done it this way, especially at a university level. So, hmm. you know, I mean, I, that's my day job. I got to run a university. I got to, you know, it was a multi-million dollar operation, pretty big operation with 400, 500 employees and all that goes with that. And I can't risk any of that. But we moved out of planning exactly 20 years ago. Now, for my t- previous 20 years before that in higher ed, I was a diligent traditional planner. I did the long range plan. I appointed the blue ribbon committee. I sent them off to work for a year and a half and come back with the plans. And here's the five, six, 10 goals we're going to do and all that stuff. I did all that. And what I found was it doesn't work. It doesn't work. It's not effective. And it really changed for me one day when, when we were shortly after I came to Bellhaven, we were having some troubles with a crediting agency, and one of them was over the issue of planning. And so I called the president of Stanford University, uh, uh, Tom Courts, who uh, happened to be also chair of the board of the of the crediting agency. And I said, Tom, I'm, I'm, I'm new in the South. I've never been this crediting agency before. I'm having trouble with this. Could you give me some guidance? He said, I'll do more than that. I'll come over and see you. He came over and spent a day with me, brought his vice president for planning, And in my conference room, after we looked at a lot of stuff, he said to me, he said, you know, I don't think there's one thing of significance that's happened to my university that we ever planned. It just came by God opening doors. And it just turned on the light bulb for me. And at that point, I started working toward this idea of letting go of planning. And then the book really tells the story of how we do it and substitutes a model for what you do instead of planning, because you can't just take out the void and say, well, we'll just sit around and wait. Right. You got to do something. You got to do something. And as a leader, you're expected to do something. And that's part of the problem. Leaders and pastors are under tremendous pressure to produce these plans because the consultants say you need them, or you got people on your, on your board or your session who, who they do planning at work. And so they want to see that and that kind of thing they have to buy into a new model as well. And it can be done. And when you do it, it's the single best decision I've ever made in my professional life in ministry Mm. was to let go of planning. I live with a freedom. I don't feel under pressure. I'm not worried about hitting a goal. 
I'm just absorbing the opportunities God brings. And when you create a culture that allows for that, we get so many more opportunities than we could ever do. And um, it just is a wonderful freedom. And, and that's what I worry about for pastors. I think a lot of pastors live under a lot of imposed pressure to try to become something you're not. And just let go of that in projecting what that's going to be, and instead let God lead you into what that's going to be. And yeah. um, so, you know, I, I just really am sold on this idea of, of there's a better way. Now, now, be real clear. I do operational planning. So we know we're going to teach English and play football and, and uh, you know, have a dance program and feed students to the dining commons. We plan that very carefully. We, we plan what we know God's going to do. What we don't plan is where God's going to take us in future destinations. So if you come to our website, there is no five or 10 year plan for Bellhaven University. It doesn't exist. Um, um, and it won't ever exist because we have bought in and understand this enormous value in letting go of planning. And the book demonstrates how it can work. But back to your original question, I did not plan to write the book <laughs> at all. It was not in my plan. I wrote another book. It's called The Longview Lasting Strategies for Rising Leaders. It's much more about kind of the, the operation of leadership, hiring and firing and evaluation and these kinds of things. There is one chapter in there in planning that's kind of the tip of the iceberg of what this book book became. But I speak in chapel every week, except we had a guest speaker one week and the provost had invited her. I didn't know her, but we we're doing a thing on mental health and he invited her and she came to speak on mental health. So she spoke and between, we had two chapels that were like a big church and we can't fit everybody in at once. So between chapels were in the, in the green room sitting around and, and, and I found out she was a book acquisition editor for Moody. And um, I said, oh, you know, and, and so she was nice and said, you know, well, would you like to write a book? And I said, no, nah, no, nah, I've done that. I have no desire. I don't want to do that again. It's, it's, I've said everything I've got to say. And <laughs> she was pretty, uh, she was pretty sly. She said, well, if you wrote a book, what would you write about? Well, I just took off on this whole idea of what became opportunity leadership. It wasn't mm. defined at that point in that term. But, and, and the planning, I mean, we're walking on stage and I'm still, you know, um, waxing eloquent uh, to her about this whole idea. And she followed up. And so that's where the book came from. And then COVID hit. And when COVID hit, I was home for a year. Uh, I didn't come to the office. And uh, uh, so I had time to write the book that I wouldn't have had otherwise. So it was Isn't an opportunity, that interesting. Book was an opportunity yeah. to talk about opportunity leadership. Yeah. And I'm curious, what's your personality type? What's your makeup? What's your wiring? You know, I don't, I don't do all those deals. <laughs> you must have done one. Their, their quadrants and stuff. And I don't yeah. really know that stuff. I, I don't, I don't, you know, I, I don't. You've never I, taken an assessment. I've never done that. Uh, I, we do strength finder <laughs> for the school. Uh, yeah. Students all take uh, strength finder and I take them that, but I forget what the deal is. We have, we have a new one we really like. It's called true motivate. What, to understand what motivates you. Yeah. And students take that and I've taken that and it was pretty accurate, but I, I don't know all the, the. Okay. But are, would you call yourself an organized person? Uh, I would say I'm fairly organized. Yeah. Are, are you administrative? Uh, yeah. It comes easy. 
Okay. Okay. So, now, it, the listeners can't see you, but uh, I joke almost every week that uh, I am in my opulent and luxurious 200 Churches Podcast Sound Studio. Now, I got to tell our <laughs> listeners, this office at uh, <coughs> Bellhaven University uh, that uh, Roger Parrott is speaking from is opulent and luxurious. Roger is wearing a suit and a tie. He's got $800 glasses on, and he's even he's even got cufflinks on this broadcloth dress shirt. So this guy is no joke. So I set that up because I, I want you to talk a little bit more now about this book, Opportunity Leadership, because what you said about guys telling you, hey, I don't feel guilty. We know that what the enemy uses against us so often is guilt and shame. And if he can use that in the context of our leadership, of our pastoral leadership, he can really diminish our effectiveness and our, our impact really in our community, in our church. Totally. And I think around this idea, this is the part of business leadership that has you know been adopted by churches. This is the part that hasn't been very helpful. I think there's been a lot that has been helpful, but yeah. this part, and it hasn't been helpful even for some businesses where they're, they're planning and they're so busy with their blinders, you know, trotting down the path they've laid out for themselves that they don't see opportunities as exactly that and as ways for God to direct your ministry or your organization. So, so talk to us a little bit about why you're, you're so passionate. You talked about waxing eloquent with this lady. And uh, this, so this happened in when, 2018, 2019 when she was there? 2018 was when she was here. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So it's been about four, yeah. good four yeah. years in the, in the works then. Why are you so passionate and why do you think that this isn't just one of many ways to lead, but that, that it's the, uh, it's the one that you not just prefer, but prioritize and think yeah. should be primary opportunity leadership. Because it's built on a theology of trust. It takes an okay. absolute and complete dependency on God to lead this way. The outcomes of this university are not mine. The outcomes are going to be what God wants it to be. And if God wants it to go and to flourish and to grow, which it has been doing through these years, then great. If God says the time's done and he wants to close it, that's fine too. That's his choice. I am not responsible for that future destination. I am responsible for being the best steward of what he's given me. So let's go back to parable of the talents, to be the good steward of the 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 two talents or the five talents and, and or, or the one talent, we're going to be the best steward we can of that and trust God for how the increase is going to come. And so the, the metaphor we use, because in Mississippi, everybody tells a story. So, I you know, you got to have a story okay. uh, to kind of communicate. And so, I mean, if you come on my campus, nobody probably would know too much about the term opportunity leadership, some might, uh, that have read the book. But Everybody will know about the difference between power boats and sailboats. And that's the metaphor we want to use. We want to be a sailboat that's prepared to catch the wind and go wherever the wind of God takes us, rather than a power boat that goes where we think God wants us to go, but can completely ignore the wind. And because we bought in, as you said so eloquently, to this corporate planning model, we have gotten proud of our power boats that are much stronger. They look more corporate. They look more professional. And we're really proud to sail those things. 
And in doing so, we're ignoring the wind of God and where God may take us. And as I remind uh, <clears throat> my team all the time, a worn out, beat up sailboat, well, our distance, a powerboat every single time, because the powerboat's eventually going to run out of gas or break down. So we want to use that image. And so the, the definition of, you know, you can't kind of talk about this. Did, I didn't write this to be a model of leadership, but it kind of came out that way. I'm an academic. And so kind of has to come out that way. But the model, the, the definition I, I, I articulated is opportunity leadership is grounded in waiting and anticipation. So we're waiting, expecting God will bring given opportunities that develop that mesh seamlessly with our mission, gifting, and capacity, propelling us to destinations that are heavily ordained. And if we can go to God's heavenly ordained destinations, we go when they match our mission, gifting, and capacity. And that is the key to this. You've got to understand your mission as a church. Every church has a different mission. There's a, there's a universal mission, but but unique place of service and calling and style and who they are. And your mission and then your gifting. What are you good at? And some churches are really good at Sunday morning. Some churches are really good at small groups. Some churches are really good at, at reaching the lost. What are you really good at? Mission, gifting, and then what's your capacity? And especially in a small church, you can only do so much. Um and so how, how do you manage it? That's how we determine as a university what we're going to do or what we're not going to do. And by letting go of the planning, what we have found is we do so much more. And let me, let me give you a quick example. We were about 10 years into no planning. And, you know, I got a board of corporate people. And they, you know, it took them a while to get to the understanding that this really is a godly way to lead, to let go of planning. And so we were about 10 years into this and they bought in and they they were catching God's opportunities and the whole thing. And uh, so I wanted to test it a little bit. So I went into a board meeting. I laid out a piece of paper. In fact, it was several pieces, 72 points of and it said at the top of a five year plan. And I started to go through it. Well, the highlights of the five-year plan were that we were going to increase our enrollment by 43%. We were going to raise $21 million in new gifts, which for us, is a that's a big number. We're going to build $31 million in new facilities. We're going to start seven undergraduate programs, one of which was nursing, which is gigantic and huge. And we're going to start eight graduate programs. And as I got to the end of it, the older board members would figure out what I'd do, and the newer ones didn't. And I said, that is not the plan for the next five years. That's what we actually did the last five years. Hmm. Here's the difference. If five years ago I had brought you that plan with those goals, you would have said, I'm crazy. And then we would have cut them down by about two thirds. And we would have said, well, let's increase enrollment by 20%. And, and let's, let's start, you know, two programs in master's level and, and three undergraduate. And let, let's raise about 10 million. And we all would have been happy with that. We all would have said, that's great. That's wonderful. This is huge. We're going to go do this. And now we pray for God to bless it. And by not having the plan, we did so much more than what we ever would have done if we'd had a plan. The plan holds us back. The plan lets us settle for mediocrity when God has so much more. 
And and again, the church can. And there's a whole section that I wrote in the book uh, uh, about uh, churches and how they feel pressured to be compared to others and wanting to be something they're not. And I, I go into some pretty good detail about that because I just think leaders live under this false uh, pressure to try to create something in a corporate structure that doesn't fit in ministry that's godly led. Jim Morgan was one of the endorsers of the book. And Jim was the president of Krispy Kreme Donut when that company was almost out of business and he turned it around. And, and when Jim read the book, he said, this is exactly what we did. We let go of the plan. This is exactly what we did. This works. <laughs> now, Jim's a strong Christian, so it can work for him. But, uh, you know, this really is a godly principle, uh, a theology of trust. You know, when I explain it to people, I say, you know, we believe God's God's sovereign. God's in everything. God's going to direct. God's going to lead. God's going to guide us. And we believe that, so we're going to live that way. And we're going to not have a plan, and this is how we're going to do it. And they all go, that's great. That's wonderful. And then it, they pull me aside afterwards. They go, well, if that doesn't work, what's the real plan? And I say, there is no other plan. That is the plan. The plan is no plan. There's no plan B. And, and what happens is when you get into this long enough, you start to realize that God will bring opportunities. But I think most leaders have gotten so tied up in planning, they think they've got to create the opportunities. And God will bring these opportunities to us when we trust him for it. And, and how do you recognize an opportunity from a distraction? Mission gifting capacity. I always come back to those. What's our mission? I got a whole chapter about staying in your lane. And staying in your lane means what you are gifted and called to do. And somebody else may be going the same direction, looks a lot like you, but they're in a little bit of a different lane. Don't wander into a different lane. Know your mission inside and out. And that is not mission statement stuff. My mission statements are fine, but mission is lived out every day in what you do, how you prioritize your time, where you put your energy, where you put your money, all those things. Mission has got to be so clear. Our mission, our gifting, and our capacity. And, uh, you know, there's a new church planted here in, in Jackson that I really like. In fact, we attended there for a while when they try and get started. And they set their mission to reach four blocks within their, within four block distance within their, where their church was located. That was their mission. I thought, how great is that? Four blocks. And, and there were so, such needs of the people in those four blocks. That was a full mission for that church. And they, and then wander out of that block, out of that footprint. Now, that's not for every church. There's other different ways to go so at it. That was their capacity. But that was their that was their mission. And then they knew their capacity and they knew what they were good at. And so they developed things that were good at helping those families in those four blocks. And I thought it was a pretty cool way to 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 think about a church. I'd never uh, when I was pastoring, I sure didn't think that way. Um, I was thinking yeah, about so, how to get people so, in the suburbs to come. So, so tease that out a little bit. It seems as though mission gifting and capacity must be a good part of this book. By the way, has the book been released? Yeah, yeah. Book came when, out. When did it uh, release? Uh, the book came out almost uh, uh, a year ago, coming up in February. So it's available. It's on Amazon. 
and uh, and all the other booksellers that's there. Uh, it was translated into Korean, which was nice, and and uh, and we sold out in a hurry to Korea. A thousand pastors bought it almost overnight. Oh, I'll bet. And, I'll uh, bet. And well, I can't and, believe I don't I don't have it. I looked on my oh, Amazon account. One. I'm sorry. I'll make sure you get one. Yeah. Well, no, 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 no. I'll get one. But I looked on my Amazon account to see, and it didn't say that I'd already ordered it because usually, yeah, it looks so familiar. And maybe it's just because I've just seen it online, but usually yeah. I will buy the books of our guests. Oh, and uh, well, we, I absolutely I, have to my, have my that book. My team who set this up should have sent you one, so I apologize for that. But well, uh, maybe Roger, yeah. maybe they did. Maybe, maybe <laughs> I, I'm going to look around because maybe they did, yeah. and that's why it's not on my Amazon. Okay. Well, you order. let me know if not, because I, I want you to have it, and I, it, it it is so applicable to small church pastors. It really is. And it gives handles about how to lead without a plan, how to do, how to really understand your mission. It asks some really hard, tough questions about mission that pastors need to go through with their board or their session. Um, It talks a a lot about, you know, part of this is, is how to get out front, but not too far out front. You know, you don't want to be the, 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 the band major who's high stepping out in front and there's no band behind you. At the same time, if nobody's out in front, the people aren't going to come. So how do you find that balance? Because and how do you how do you change the way that you uh, communicate the transparency required in this? And then and then it talks about style of of leadership. Um, I, I, I go into a pretty big explanation about we have become, I think, in Christian leaders enamored with with football coaches as a model for leadership. And. Um, um, you know, football is under control and it's uh, it's time constrained. It's precise. It's team synchronization. We're all going to do this. We've got a predetermined plan. And in football, you know, especially in college football, you got to win nearly every game. And uh, baseball, on the other hand, it rewards anticipation. It's reactionary. It's it's encouraging personal ingenuity, flexibility, interwoven purposes. I mean, you know, how are you finding people in the church and letting them find what their ministry good at good at rather than fitting into our program, et cetera, et cetera. And in baseball, you can lose about 30% and still win the World Series. So, but here's the here's the really interesting point about that analogy. When you're watching a football game and the tension's on and the moment of a critical point in that game comes, the camera always goes to the coach every single time. In a baseball game, when the critical moment comes, the camera goes to the player. And we as leaders need to turn the cameras on the players, turn the camera around to the people who are we are there to minister with, who are part of this. And our job is to facilitate and help them grow and facilitate how they can use their ministry gifts because every one of them has a ministry gift that we'll never have. They get into places and with people will never reach in a pastor's role. Um, and, and how do we make that happen? So, so we're talking really a lot about building, um, a culture that thinks differently about, 
about what outcomes are, are and success is. And, and so I talk about the talents of oper- six talents of opportunity leaders and then six tendencies of opportunity leadership ministries and the, the way they tend to operate. And, and you know, it's, it's uh, speed wins to go quickly when things happen. So often we get, a, we get something, we get an opportunity to do this or that, and then we got to have a bunch of committee meetings, a bunch of structure, a bunch of sign-off. Even in a small church, you can do that with all kinds of process. It doesn't have to be there. Um, I was interviewing a, a, a dean for business uh, the other day, and he was telling me how uh, um, at his, his university where he is now, it took him two years to get something done, specific thing done. I said, well, you know, in our place, that's probably about a 15-minute process. We can get that done <laughs> because you bring the people around who need to be around. You make a decision and you go. And every decision we make is not a life and death decision. But yeah. that goes with the next. You got to get comfortable with risk. And there's a certain amount of risk and a certain amount of it's not going to work sometimes. And sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes it, it doesn't go forward. The challenge with when you go a traditional planning structure and you say, OK, we're going to plan to do this and we're going to we're going to reach um uh, we're going to reach, uh, you know, elementary kids age. And we're going to do this and that. It didn't work out right. We can't stop. We are terrible in the church at stopping something. And part of the reason we're terrible is we prayed when we did it, we thought God was directing. We prayed over it and we said, God called us to this. We are going to go do this because God's called to this. And now three years into it, it doesn't work. Well, did we miss God's call? Are we not spiritual enough? Whatever it might be, um, you know, um, uh, all that stuff goes on. Yeah. And, and so, yeah. instead of stopping, we create something new on top of it. And mm-hmm. um, and when we create something new on top of it, we just make the problem even even worse. So, so you know, it's uh, it's an interesting way to think about a different culture where you're flexing, you're adjustable. You're, I've got a chapter on learning to love roadblocks and how you embrace roadblocks when they come, which is so important. And, and then I've got a, the final chapter of the book is is uh, being like Jesus, really. And it's this whole concept of when John was asked to describe Jesus, who was closest to him? He said he came full of grace and truth. In the Christian world, we've gotten really strong with our truth. And we've gotten pretty good at beating people over the head with it and put it on slogans on social media. But what if we were as aggressive on grace as we are on truth? And that's who Jesus was. He was full of grace and truth. And you've got to have that spirit underlying this whole idea if you're going to get rid of the planning structure. So that's some wandering kind of where this book goes. Yeah. Would you say grace and truth or love and truth are two sides to the same coin or they're kind of different things. I, I, I'm not sure how best to describe it. I, I, you know, you, you're on the front line of that more. I think, especially for a Christian university setting, I have to talk about it as two different things because we talk in classes about truth. Um, but people are about grace. And how do you really create that environment where people feel accepted as they are without fitting some certain standard where they're comfortable and they're they're loved and they're cared for? No matter where they stand on truth, and but we're going to teach the truth at the same time. So for us, we at least in my teaching with my crowd, I have to kind of separate it out a little bit different. And yeah, unfortunately, the, in the political climate we're in, I, I think a lot of churches have been pushed into having to be a stronger uh, 
standard of truth, but they're not pulling that same standard of grace along with that. And in doing so, we're doing a disservice to the church and the people we serve. Yeah, that's helpful. Earlier, you talked about football and baseball. And I was thinking about, of course, you're familiar with John Maxwell's The Law of the Scoreboard. Right. One of his laws of leadership or laws of teamwork. I don't remember which. And how is that helpful or how is that not helpful to church leaders? Because for me, sometimes it's hard to know what the scoreboard is in a church. You know, it's not like it's not like a football game. You're right. There's not just four quarters and everything. You know exactly where you are. Sometimes the scoreboard's just blank in different areas. Exactly. So in terms of planning or opportunity, how is the scoreboard idea helpful or not? Well, I think it's critical to understand how the scoreboard works within ministry. And again, I'm not quite as familiar with John's work as you are. But to me, I mean, you know, there's scoreboards for Christian colleges. Number of students I've got enrolled, the amount of money it takes to run this place, you know, 50 million bucks, whatever it may be, how much we raise. Uh, and if the football team wins, which is important, we were eight and two this year. So that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> but so those scoreboards matter. But as I often tell the campus, and this is part of our culture, what matters most, you can't keep score on. I can't keep score on a student who is in an English class and the light bulb goes on about how Christian worldview really has impacted our thinking and how we approach life. I can't, I can't keep score of when a coach walks off the field with a player and the player's down and, and, he, and, he, and he shares with him that God loves him and that's what matters most and the, and the student gets a different perspective on life. I can't, I can't put on the scoreboard, you know, the students in chapel or, or a Bible study or whatever who come to the Lord in a different way and grow. The stuff that matters most, I can't keep score on. I keep score on the stuff that doesn't matter so much. Um, and the, and the world does. And then, you know, I used to fight against it for years and people would say, Oh, you're doing so great at Bell Haven. Look at all the stuff you're building and all this stuff. And, and I kind of pushed back against that a little bit. I finally decided, you know, that, that is how the world keeps score and I got to go with that. But that's not what the scoreboard matters to me. Uh, the scoreboard that matters to me is what's happening in transformation of lives. And so we adopted, um, a, uh, it's not a slogan, it's a philosophy for the university several years ago. And it's on all our materials. You see it on the website, you see it on stationery, you see it on everything. And that's our standard is Christ. And we want our standard to be Christ, not our standard to be the accrediting agency or the NCAA or the, the uh, federal government or anybody else. Our standard is Christ and the things that matter most to him, I can't put on a scoreboard. And that can be hard for a pastor. It can be real hard for pastor because that whole attendance thing can drive you. I, I remember when I was pastor and I'd kind of nudge the guy who kept attendance every week to kind of just push it up a little bit. Just pu- I think there were more there. I think there were some out in the hallway. Push it up a little bit. You know, I've been through all that. It's hard because, you know, people look at that and you want to go to the annual meeting of the of the churches and say we were we grew 15 percent this year. And those who do get applause and those who don't, you know, nobody says anything. There's all that pressure. But that's not that's not what we're about. We're about transformation in people's lives, and it can't be measured in the same way. So I think everybody's got to figure out what works for them and their setting and their environment. 
And it doesn't mean lack of accountability. There is accountability. And the accountability to me is to be a great steward of exactly what God has given you right now. Are we getting the very most out of what we've got this second? And if we are, then God will bring the increase. We don't generate the increase. That's good. That's good. So what would you say is in your experience and in your leadership at the college, what has been the thing that you would look back on and say, this has been the best decision that has impacted my leadership the most? This is something that I learned at some point. Getting rid of planning was by far the single best decision I ever made. And and again, for us, we went off the cliff. Now we didn't just jump off. It took it's a process. And in the book, I outline the process. How do you do it? So, okay. um, uh, but getting rid of planning and changing that culture. When I got free, so I'm not feeling that burden that I've got to make it happen. It just opened up so much for me. So, with that, um, I think um, I think in leadership, another principle that's really been important to me is learning to live with ambiguity. You, you can't have everything nailed down. There's going to be stuff that just dangles out there. And keep your eye on the bigger issues uh, and not trying to to can't be settled unless everything gets nailed down. Uh, I've, I've learned, and I, and I read some of the book about, about dealing with critics. It may be in the first book, I'm not sure. But dealing with critics, and every church has got critics, every college has got critics. And when I do something that I know is going to get the attention of the critics, I go to them first. Uh, and I seek them out. And I say, you know, we're thinking about this, and I think you've probably got a different perspective on it. And I'd like to, first of all, I want to learn from what they've got to say. Secondly, I want them to have their say. And thirdly, the critics you're always going to have. And what I find is their teeth are less sharp before the decision than after the decision. And after huh. the decision, they can really go at you. And so if you get them before the decision, and you know who they are, all of us who are in leadership, you've been there you know, a year, you know who your critics are about various issues. Seek them out, find those people and learn something from. Them. I've never had a criticism in my life. And, you know, every once in a while, well, I'll get a hot letter from somebody about something. And, and you know, that happens. Um, I've never had a criticism I didn't learn something from. And the learning might have even been how to better communicate. But uh, I've always learned from the critics. So those are a few of the things that along the way have uh, have become meaningful in my leadership. So in brief, what replaces the leadership, uh, the planning meeting? Yeah. In other words, if you don't plan, so we're not going to plan, you know what you've got to do. You want to organize and plan your day, but you don't plan in terms of long-term goals and all that. Is, is there a simple answer to, I know it's in the book, but is there a simple answer to what what, yeah. what generally replaces that? What's in its what, place? What replaces that is a culture of anticipation that God is going to bring opportunities. So you've okay. got to build that culture within the church, within the ministry, within the university, where we know God will bring opportunities. And when those opportunities come, we are so confident in our culture because the trust is there, the transparency is there, the openness, the spirit is there, that those things don't jar us and we're able to move very quickly. And, and I'll give you a quick example. We, uh, we uh, started working in China five years ago. We were approved by the, 
by the government in China, in China. It's really interesting because we had to kind of strip all the Christian stuff we normally do in the curriculum. You can't put that in print in China. About although about half of our students are Christians in China, which is interesting. They kind of send quiet signals. But we had that opportunity. It came to me on a June 1 in the middle of summer. Nobody around. The faculty weren't around. July 1, we signed a contract. August 1, we started writing curriculum. And on October, in September 1, we enrolled the first student in a class. We were able to move that quickly because we'd spent years building a culture where our faculty and our staff and our board were comfortable with opportunities when God brings them, even though that was an opportunity on was wasn't even close to on anybody's radar. And so having that kind of uh, spirit where you can create this culture where people are comfortable with that. And part of the way you do that is you, you, you applaud it, you reward it, you celebrate it. So maybe somebody in the church, you know, was able to, to help a family who had a fire down the street from their house. Well, talk about it and celebrate it. That's significant ministry. That's more significant than getting another 20 in Sunday school. You know, uh, talk about those kinds of things. It's, it's the, it's in the looking back that people can have confidence for the going forward. And that's part of the culture we try to build. And, and my, my summary way of saying that to, the, to, the, to my constituency uh, of faculty and staff is, you know, when we look ahead, it seems overwhelming. There's so many challenges. What about this? What about this? All these things that are before us. The only way you can cope with what's before us when you look ahead and you really say, yikes, to all that is to look back. And when you look back, the path looks about the same way. <laughs> there was stuff you thought you'd never get through, but you can see where God led you through the path and over the obstacles and through things and where you are today. And you look back and say, wow. So when we look ahead and say, yikes, we can also look back and say, wow. So I'm always helping my campus to look back and to remember what God has done, because that's what gives us the faith and the, and the confidence to look forward, even though things look challenging in the future. So as we land the plane, Roger, is there a piece of ministry encouragement you want to leave with some small church pastors? Yeah, I, I would say this. God called you to that place for this time. God didn't call you there to go someplace else for this time. God will tell you when it's time to go. But God called you to that place for this time. And if you throw yourself into that and just look at your mission, gifting, and capacity, fulfill that in fullness, not trying to be somebody else, not trying to emulate somebody else, not trying to be like the church down the street. Do what God's uniquely gifted you to do. Uh, That's where the fulfillment comes. And that's where the joy comes. And that's where the presence of the Lord comes. It comes again back to this theology of trust. God's in charge. He didn't throw me the keys and say, go drive Belhaven University. Hmm. God's driving Belhaven University. But I'm helping as much as I can. Awesome. So Belhaven University, Jackson, Mississippi. The book, Opportunity Leadership, Stop Planning and Start Seeing Results. Is that it? Getting results. We're not just getting results. Get them. (laughs) I like it. I like it. Hey, thank you so much for spending this hour with us. I really appreciate it. What a treat for me. Thank you. I really treasure the invitation. Well, thank you, Roger, for that conversation. Roger Parrott could be the only guest we've ever had a conversation with from the state of Mississippi. 
Now, like I said, I've never been to Mississippi. It is a regret of mine. I'd love to go to Mississippi, Louisiana, Alabama. I've never been in any of those three states. They're just three that I've just missed in my travels. I think he's the first one from Mississippi. What a personality this guy has. So warm, so inviting, and so confident. And I loved what he said that that guest that he had on campus, the consultant, uh, uh, the, the guy who was the director of, uh, I think, planning for the one institution, who said nothing significant has happened that we've planned. It's just something that God has brought about. That I just butchered that quote. But you know what I'm talking about. And I have seen that over and over. In fact, somebody once called me an opportunist, and basically what they were saying was, you don't let good opportunities go by. You try to seize, seize the moment. You try to grab them. And it's true. When I see something good, I want to jump at it. And to me, that's been when I've been able to move the ball down the field the most. Is where you just have to be looking for opportunities and take advantage of them. Sometimes we're following our plan and then we miss an opportunity. We're so busy looking at our schedule and what we planned, and an opportunity goes sailing right by us. We don't even see it. So, Pastor, take whatever you need to take from this episode. Maybe you need to take that planning retreat and make it a relationship retreat or a spiritual retreat or a biblical retreat. Maybe it needs to be something other than long-range planning. Maybe it needs to be, how would we recognize him? Hey, maybe it needs to be his book, Opportunity Leadership. There's a thought. Get that book, read it, and have a discussion about that. And and he talked about gifting and capacity and mission. I think it was, I think that was it. I know capacity and mission was there. There was something else. How to recognize if something's a distraction or if it's an opportunity. That would be something to have a retreat over. Well, Pastor, thanks so much. I hope you buy the book, Opportunity Leadership, Stop Planning and Start Getting Results. And I hope that you stop planning and you start getting results. Thanks so much for joining me. And I'll talk to you next week on the 200 Churches Podcast.